Chapter Three of the Philosophy of Immanuel Kant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kualada. The Philosophy of Immanuel Kant, by Alexander Dalap Lindsay. Chapter Three, Kant's Idealism, Time and Space. The great discovery which Kant considered he had made, as to the nature of reason, was that reason was not a method of observing objects as they really exist, but was concerned directly only with our ways of understanding objects. This discovery is the essence of Kant's idealism, and its main purpose is expressed in the distinction that Kant so often makes between things in themselves and phenomena. This distinction is used as the key to the solution of all his difficulties, but the doctrine it implies is very easy to misunderstand. Partly because idealism is generally used in a very different sense from that in which Kant uses it, partly because Kant's statement of the distinction between things in themselves and phenomena depended on a view of knowledge, which he was very much concerned to refute. But with which we are not now familiar. If we are to understand Kant's philosophy, we must know what he means by idealism and wherein his idealism differs from that of his predecessors. The word idealism is naturally contrasted with realism. It suggests an assertion that something is not real but only an idea. If we know it to be combined with the distinction between things in themselves. And phenomena or appearances, it seems to suggest that the objects of knowledge are somehow illusions, or only appearances in the mind, as contrasted with real things. Something like this has been held by Kant's predecessors. For the fundamental principle of the idealism on which most of Kant's predecessors had been agreed, and which is sometimes called Cartesian and sometimes subjective idealism. Is that the mind somehow knows itself and its own actions and states with more directness and certainty than it knows external objects? The doctrine is commonly based upon a confused view of sense perception. Sense perception is obviously possible only through processes in the sensory organs, and objects were thought of as producing impressions. Through the sensory organs in brain and the mind, as then becoming aware of them in the brain. Hence, when Locke says that the mind only knows its own ideas, he tends to mean, though the facts are sometimes too much for him and he is nobly inconsistent, that the mind only knows objects inside the brain. The main objection to this doctrine, apart from the fact that it is based on a confusion. Is that it makes it quite inexplicable how the notion of an outside world ever arises, for if we know and must eternally know only ideas inside our head, why should we ever imagine that there an outside world exists? Yet if nothing outside us were observed, if we knew of no process which went on between outside objects and the brain, the doctrine would have no basis on which to rest. There cannot be any meaning in saying something is only an idea, 
if we do not know what is real in the sense of its having an existence independent of our minds. Locke supposed that, although we know only ideas, we could somehow refer from our ideas to an outside world, for he thought that the truth was concerned with the agreement of our ideas with reality. This form of the doctrine, the commonest, is sometimes called representationism, for it thinks of the mind as concerned with representations or pictures or images which it may compare with the real objects. Its fertility is obvious enough. We can only compare a picture with the thing it represents if we can know both. If we can only know ideas, we can never know that there are only ideas and can never compare them with anything else. This difficulty was seen by Berkeley, the most consistent of subjective idealists, and led him to deny the existence of outside objects and hold that existence or reality meant being perceived and nothing more. But if we take Berkeley's position, it becomes very difficult to say what we mean by judgments being true. If things only exist as we think of them or perceive them, or rather, if they are only our thinking or our perceiving of them. The question of the truth or falsity of our statements about them cannot arise. This idealism Kant is careful to refute, and he points out that there is no evidence for its fundamental proposition that we know our mind more directly than we know objects. We are only conscious of ourselves in knowing something not ourselves. We do not invent a notion of externality or outsideness in space from an experience in which its originality has no part. Externality is implied in our most simple experience. We begin with consciousness of outside things and only become conscious of our own mental states or processes later. But it is important to observe that the truth or falsity of subjective idealism has no bearing whatsoever on the question with which Kant was concerned. If I ask how I can lay down rules about what I have not yet experienced, I am not in the least helped by being told that I only experience what is in my mind. For the question will equally arise, how do I know what is going to be in my mind? The question idealism ordinarily discusses as to whether the objects of our awareness are in our mind or outside, are in their nature mental and dependent on the mind, or not, is entirely and absolutely irrelevant to Kant's purposes. But it is a fact, and one that has got to be explained, that in judgment we go beyond what is present to our minds, and that in so anticipating what we shall experience, we assume that certain principles hold of all that had been or may be present. With that difficulty, idealism as ordinarily understood has nothing to do. Representationism tried to give some account of this going beyond what is present to our minds by suggesting that truth is a reference from ideas to reality. But as we saw, if we know only ideas, such a reference is impossible. The doctrines opposed to representationism, that only ideas exist, or that we directly know real objects, allow the existence of nothing contrasted 
with what we are apprehending to which a reference in judgment can be made. No one who is satisfied with any of these positions can have seen Kant's problem. If Kant, then, is not a subjective idealist, what does he mean by saying, as he constantly does, that we only know phenomena, and why should that limitation of knowledge help him in any of his difficulties? He means, in the first place, that all knowledge depends upon perception. The first paragraph of the first part of the Critique of Pure Reason makes that clear. Whatever the process and the means may be by which knowledge reaches its objects, there's one that reaches them directly and forms the ultimate material of all thought, with perception. This is possible only when the object is given, and the object can be given only to human beings at least, through a certain affection of the mind. Now, although we perceive an objective reality, Sense perception obviously gives a very imperfect knowledge of objects. We see only some sides and aspects of things, and not others. What we see depends on changes in our precision. Further, we know that what we see is only a small part of the nature of anything. We think of reality as an interconnected system, but we only perceive a very small part of it, and what we perceive depends upon the particular time and the particular part of space in which we live. In our experience, we are never really content simply with what we perceive. We perceive much too little for that. We are always inferring from what we see to something beyond it. What is that something beyond which, as we have seen, is applied in all judgment? We might hold that it was the things that they really are, as distinguished from things as they appear, or phenomena, and that when we turned from perception to thought, we turned from illusion to reality. Kant denied this. He held that if you examine a scientific judgment about anything you perceive, such as that yellow thing is gold, you will find that if you know what the judgment means, you will be able to say, then, under such and such conditions, if you weigh it, for example, you will have such and such a perception. The appeal is not from what you perceive to what you think, but from what you perceive now to what you will perceive under such and such conditions. Such a reference, indeed, implies thought and what is ordinarily called a concept. But our knowledge of concepts used in science always means that if we know what is meant, e.g. by calling anything gold, we know how it will behave under such and such conditions. The concept in Kant's words is a function of unity in our representations. The task of thought, then, is not to turn the mind away from what we perceive, but to help us to transcend some of the limitations of our perceptions, or, to speak more accurately, to set somewhat further back the limits of our perception, for thought never entirely transcends these limits. Our knowledge is always conditioned by the fact that we are finite minds living in a particular place at a particular time, but thought can extend the range of our perception in space and in time. The limitations of our perception have, for Kant, a double aspect. 
which determines his division of the first part of the critique into two parts, the aesthetics and the analytic. In the first place, our direct knowledge of space at any one time is always knowledge only of a part of space. Our direct knowledge of time, whether in present consciousness or in memory of our own experience, is knowledge of only a part of time. And the things in the space we directly perceive, or in the time we experience, are what they are by their relation to the space outside the space we see, and time beyond the time we experience. And that limited space and time we treat, therefore, as parts of one all-embracing space and one all-embracing time. And in the conception of an indefinitely extended space and time, we can think of the space in which all things exist and the time in which all things occur, of which we only see and experience a small part. The science of astronomy obviously thought of space and time far beyond anything we could ever perceive, but we go beyond such direct perception in such simple expressions as 40 miles from here, or 3 days hence, and when Kant says that space and time are only phenomenal, he does not mean that they are mental, but that we only know them through perception, and that we get at absolute space and time, not by going from what we perceive to what we think, but by thinking of what we perceive indefinitely extended. All definite statements about space must come back in the end to so far from here, all about time to so long from now. And the fact that all our knowledge of space and time is got by adding to or extending in thought the space and time we directly perceive does, according to Kant, solve some obstinate puzzles about the nature of space and time. In the second place, if we consider our knowledge of objects, we realize that, as we said, at any one moment we only perceive them in part or from one position. What we directly perceive of them is fragmentary and discontinuous, one aspect seen now and another aspect seen at another time. But we do not think of the things as existing in that discontinuous way. We think of them as having a nature of their own that does not contradict but is something very much more than what we perceive. And our knowledge of any object is got by piecing together the aspects we directly perceive, but that piecing together, or synthesis, is not haphazard. It is governed by rules, rules partly derived from the nature of the particular thing we are concerned with, and partly more general rules, which come from the relation of this work of piecing together to the framework of space and time by help of which it is done. Kant's conception of knowledge, then, is something like this. Each of us is in direct contact with reality, but we perceive directly only a small part of it, and as our consciousness moves on in time, and as we change our position in space, we are directly conscious of different in small portions of reality. A part of the whole is illumined by direct perception, but the whole stretches beyond that, indefinitely, in space and time. In the part we directly perceive, there is a temporal order and a spatial order. Things are given to us arranged in space and ordered in time. 
and these arrangements or orders in the space and time that is directly given to us in perception have certain rules, and we think of these principles of arrangement as extending indefinitely beyond the space and time given to us in perception. When we make judgments about reality beyond our perception, we think of things as so arranged in the space and time beyond our perception, as we should see them arranged were the range of our perception sufficiently wide. Further, it is most important to remember that we do not remain in one place and at one time and make guesses of what may happen in the darkness beyond. Though our perception at any one moment is limited. We can connect what we see at one time with what we see at another. We can, by means of language and writing, use the perception of others to fill out our experience until gradually our scientific judgments, our knowledge of what we should perceive under all sorts of possible experience, seems to bulk much more largely than could our individual perceptions. But we are still, Kant would say. Getting at our knowledge of what is beyond by piecing together what we and other people have perceived, and the whole is always much more than that. What then is meant by the contention that we can know things in themselves, which Kant is earnest to refute? It might mean that we do, in perception, attain to a complete knowledge, but that would be obviously untrue, as Kant understood the claim. It meant rather something like this: in thought, we are obviously not limited by our perception. We are always assuming certain principles, such as the laws of space or the principle of causation, to hold of all reality, both what we do and what we do not directly perceive. May we not say then that these principles hold of all reality and argue from that fact? To what the nature of the whole must be, if everything that we know is cost, e.g., may we not apply the principle of causation to all reality and say that it must have a cause? When we come to consider the dialectic, the second main division of the first critique, we shall notice Kant's detailed analysis of these arguments and how he points out that you can, in this way, get contradictory results. In the meantime, it must be observed that in these arguments we start from principles applied to what we perceive, and expressing connections between the different things we perceive, and then apply them beyond everything we do or could perceive. That means that we imagine that we can take these principles out of relation not only to this or that detail of perception. But out of relation to any perception at all, and thus apprehend reality by thought independently of perception. Kant's answer is that thought cannot directly apprehend the nature of the whole, and these universal principles, such as the principle of causation, are only principles by which we connect one perception with another. To amend the discontinuous and fragmentary nature of our perception, they are rules for the synthesis of what we perceive. By so synthesizing our perceptions, we come to a less imperfect knowledge of the whole. But apart from the perceptions, the principles have no meaning at all. Kant's idealism 
In essence, his insistence that we know only phenomena, not things in themselves, is relevant to his problem because it implies the denial of the view that thought has objects apprehended independently of perception. And because it insists that we can only know directly what we perceive, or things as they appear to us, that in our process from perception to knowledge, we start with what is present to our perception, and end with what is or with what might be present to our perception, and that this process is possible by reason of our continued consciousness in time. The process Kant holds is governed by certain principles. These depend upon the part played by space and time in all our perception, and the manner in which we employ space and time in piecing together our discontinuous perceptions. Now, obviously, it is quite possible to hold this precision without having thought out what is implied in being present to the mind in perception. This is what Kant did. He describes perception in different and inconsistent ways. The reason for this inconsistency is that Kant is not concerned with the nature of perception, but with the relation of what is immediately perceived to what is not but may be immediately perceived, and he therefore never worked out any consistent account of perception. He sometimes talks of perception reaching objects directly. And refutes the view that we perceive only what is in our mind. This indeed is implied in his distinction of space and time as forms of external and internal sense, respectively. But usually he takes the ordinary idealist view that we do not perceive things, but affections produced in us by things. Owing to this inconsistency, Kant constantly seems to be stating very much more than he has any right to. This is especially true in all that he says about knowledge being confined to phenomena and not extending to things in themselves. When he talks of our knowing only phenomena, he sometimes seems to mean that we know objects, things in themselves, only in part, in so far as they appear to us. That would make the distinction between the phenomenon and the thing in itself a distinction between the same thing imperfectly and perfectly understood. He sometimes, and this is his more usual view, seems to mean that we are aware of appearances, entities separate and distinguishable from the objects which produce them in our minds. But if we work out in any of Kant's arguments the point of his appeal to the fact that knowledge is only of phenomena. We shall find that in every case, the difference between a subjective idealist and a realist view of perception, of what being present to the mind means, is irrelevant, and that his argument holds on either theory. We must now turn to Kant's account of space and time, which is given in the Aesthetics, the first part of the critique. He begins by showing the impossibility of the two views of the nature of space and time, which then held the field: the views of Newton and Leibniz. Newton had thought of space and time as realities, things in themselves existing along with other things. But obviously, we cannot think of space as a separate thing existing by itself, for space without things would have no determination. 
or possibility of determination, and would be to us just nothing, whereas as it is, it is something to us. The same holds of time. The Newtonian doctrine, Kant says, forces us to assume two eternal, infinite, and self-subsisting non-realities, which are there without any reality in them, only that they may comprehend all reality. Just because things are in space and time, space and time are not themselves things. But if this makes us say that space and time are only relations between our qualities of things, we find ourselves in difficulties as obvious. We do not come to apprehend space and time by comparing things and seeing that they have a common quality of being spatial or temporal. As we come to apprehend redness, for example, by seeing red things, the perception of space and time is implied in each and every perception of things. We cannot, therefore, derive them from our study of things. We must begin with them. Further, Kant notices, as against Leibniz, that space and time are not ordinary concepts because they have no instances. Different men are instances of man, but different spaces or times are only parts or determinations of the one space and the one time. As against the view, then, that would make space and time only relations derived from our comparison of things, which are not temporal or spatial. Kant insists that space and time are a priori. We cannot see things without seeing them outside one another. In essence, in space, or experience successions or change without experiencing it in time. Space and time then have a certain independence of things in space and time. The qualitative differences of things in space or events in time do not affect the nature of space and time, and we can and do study and discuss spatial and temporal relations quite independently of such differences. Space and time then can be abstracted from things in space and time. Yet, on the other hand, we cannot think that space and time exist independently of things. They do not exist in abstraction, for though the specific differences of things in space and time are irrelevant to the nature of space and time, if there were no things or if there were no differences, there could be no space and time as we know them. The empirical perception, says Kant, is not compounded of phenomena and space, of the sensation and the empty perception. Space and time, therefore, Kant says, are not things in themselves. What then are they? Kant's answer is that they are forms of our perception. Space is a form of our external perception, and time is a form of internal perception. And Kant holds that by this answer, we can understand both how our knowledge of space and time may be a priori, how spatial and temporal distinctions may be abstracted from the differences of things, and how we may avoid the difficulties consequent on regarding time and space as independent things. What then does Kant mean by form? He seems to mean two things, which he does not clearly distinguish. The first meaning is best described in his own words. In the phenomenon, 
I call what corresponds to the sensation the matter of the phenomenon, and that which causes that the manifold of the phenomenon is perceived as arranged in specific relations. I call the form of the phenomenon. We are here face to face with the ultimate difference of form and matter, or order and that which is ordered. When Kant calls time and space the form of our perception, he is simply calling attention to the fact that in all that we perceive, we find this distinction. It is something found, given, not made by us. By the word "form," Kant does not mean anything specially subjective. As contrasted with matter or content, for he carefully distinguishes between space and time and such qualities as color, which get their nature in part, he thinks, from the specific nature of the sense organ. Compared with such qualities, space and time are objective. The phrase "forms of our perception" then does not really explain anything about space and time. It only emphasizes the fact that the distinction between space and time, and the object in them, is found in what we perceive, and that there is no meaning in discussing either side of the distinction as though it were quite independent of what we perceive. But form has also another meaning, which justifies Kant in calling space and time only forms of our perception, and hence subjective. For while these forms are found in what we perceive, the distinctive part which they play in our knowledge is due to the fact that we use space and time as a framework by which to connect our scattered experiences. We come to think of the space and time we perceive as parts of an absolute space and an absolute time. We perceive parts of space and time. But absolute space and absolute time we do not perceive; they are the form we perceive, imagined, indefinitely extended. We order the particular parts of space and time which we do not perceive in reference to absolute space and time. Yet absolute space and time are only known through the finite parts of space and time which we actually experience. Hence. Absolute space and time are not perceived realities or perceived orders, but ways in which we organize and arrange what we perceive. Now, the qualities of space and time, which are hard to think of as the qualities of a thing that exists, in a sense, their infinite divisibility and infinite extension, are qualities of absolute space and time. When we say that space is indefinitely divisible, we do not mean that any existing thing is made up of an infinite number of parts. The divisibility of space and the divisibility of matter are quite different. An inch as a spatial determination is infinitely divisible, but the divisibility of the actual stuff, which any inch may measure, is a matter of empirical investigation. And ought to admit of a definite answer. That means that while we use determinations of space which we consider infinitely divisible and infinitely extensible to measure things in space, we do not consider that these determinations, fractions, or multiples of inches or centimeters, have anything to do with the constitution of the thing they measure. 
It was not put together in fractions of inches. Thus, we must distinguish between space as the form of what we perceive. The next is utterness of things, and the use we make of that form to construct by means of measurement order in all different perception. The first is obviously the form only of what we perceive, and gives rise to no transcendental questions. But the second, infinite space, though it seems to transcend our perception, has still only meaning in reference to perception. Is only a way of ordering our perceptions. The same holds good of time. We can see now what Kant means by saying that time and space are empirically real and transcendentally ideal. Kant does not maintain that space and time are illusions. They are a constant element of what is given us in perception. It is only when we try and go beyond our perceptions and take space and time as things existing independently of what we perceive, thus trying to transcend the limits of possible perception, that we fall into illusion. Space and time have meaning only as elements in what we perceive, or in connecting what we perceive now. With what we may perceive. End of chapter three. Recorded by Kualada.